Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today we're going to be talking about the state of the investment market in 2023. And my guest is Ercol Manzi. Ercol, hello. Good day, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Kevin. Ercol, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an international tax advisor turned finance executive. After an MBA, I went to business school and then coming out, I became an investment banker. My focus has been on financial institutions. And because I was in the thick of it for such a long, long time, I saw the credit crunch coming and I managed to get out. So I became a financial manager and CFO. And eventually I spent a few years in China uh, looking what these guys are doing over there with uh, FinTech. That is going to be really interesting. I'm sure we'll get on as we continue through the show and talk a little bit about the difference between those Chinese and Asian markets and what we're seeing here in the West. So, Erko, the market is changing going into 2023. There'll be a lot of our finance leaders looking for funding, looking for the next round, possibly finding more pressure on cash, maybe having to go and look for the next stage of funding for their businesses earlier. What do you see is happening going into 2023? Well, you know, maybe it's because we are in December. This is the part of the year when we review what we have accomplished in the past 12 months and looking forward to the next one. Now, something I would like to know, it's for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to emphasize some subject. Of course, there will be case by case differences from what I'm experiencing or what I'm looking. But at the same time, this is my what I see. I've seen in the past, we've been in the demand of capital market. And because of what has happened lately in the past two months, we are rapidly shifting into a supply of capital market. So now all this amount of capital available for all the startup to access to, they're going to shrink. So there is going to be selection in the selection process. As it is always the case, the valuations are going to change. So we are going to pass from sometimes non-realistic multiples on exit, exit multiples. We're going to be coming back to a more traditional way of valuing things, which can be discounting profitability. But at the same time, I think it's going to be also, but we'll discuss about this later on, for the case of the fintech, is going to be replacement cost. Spin-off of all the discussion is going to be that major emphasis is going to be shifting from an IPO as a successful exit into an M&A, contemplating a different way, which may be for some people less sexy, but in my opinion, it's a much less risky way of buying in assets. When you do this, uh, a lot of things are going to happen. From my point of view, there is going to be less emphasis on B2C and more emphasis on B2B. So this is what I see. And the big part of this conversation, which I'm quite sure we're going to talk about, it, is going to be about 
due diligence and frauds and all this scam that we've been reading about for the past two weeks. Yeah. So this sounds like a very interesting time. And we, we've seen overvaluation in markets time and time again. And we go right back to it probably happened back in the 18th in the 19th century, but probably the one that everybody remembers is the start of the 20th century, Wall Street crash. Then we saw huge overvaluations during the dot-com boom and all of that crashed. So effectively, we're coming into probably another set of overvaluations crashing out, which must have a lot of fintechs starting to get quite worried that they were building a business for a big exit day. And the IPO just isn't going to happen. So where you're in that situation, called to start off with, that you were looking for that big exit and that big exit isn't going to happen anymore. What do you think the main things are that you've got to be focused on now? Well, uh, how can I put it, Kevin? This is the reason why I went to China, effectively, yeah. because I know how to value a financial institution. So for me, if I were to sit on a startup, what I would do is what is my strategy? What are the critical assets that I have uh, where I am better than incumbents, than banks in doing, I don't know, call it payment, call it uh, a rec tech, whatever that is. Once I uh, zero down on these uh, particular area of expertise, then the first thing I'm going to be doing is try to sort of consolidate around me. So buy new players or becoming much bigger or as big as I can. And then eventually contemplating some sort of uh, slow love affair with a big bank in order to, you know, show that we have an interesting asset that it can be uh, suitable for a larger player and that in joining together, call it an M&A, calling a partnership, it can be you know, profitable for the both of us. In the moment you start doing this, you're sending a very big sign to a market that have been expecting this for a long, long time. We are starting to see already slowly some shifting in the US, which is a much more technical market. But in my opinion, we will see some in Europe too. So you talk about the Chinese market. What has been happening in China over recent years? What's special about that marketplace? Let me take a step back so that uh, hopefully I'm able to show my frame of mind. Having been in the nitty gritty of a bank doing privatization, doing multiple transactions, I discovered effectively inefficient banks were. So in my mind, I started thinking, you know, this could be an easy fix if there were some sort of a political agenda highlighting this issue. But usually they don't do it because back then it was not considered, processes were not considered to be particularly sexy uh, because they didn't move uh, share price too much. So, and I saw effectively, I saw the credit crunch coming. So what I thought, I saw the emergence of this China and I said, why don't I go there and try to eventually bringing together the two worlds because the infrastructure working in China is incredible. But at the same time, they don't have the soft skill. For them, it's going to be they're expecting AI and uh, artificial intelligence application finance to bring them to our level. And it's going to take 10 years. Nonetheless, the big difference and 
we can talk here forever, but I want to highlight one thing. When you need to apply technology, you have to take into consideration that China is operating on a green field or blue ocean, whichever way you want to do it. So they don't have the legacy issues that we have here in Europe. And that is a massive difference. And then, of course, while I was living in possibly the most modern city in the world, there are many huge communities in the middle of China that are not nearly as modern. So financial inclusion has been a major theme played in order to boost valuation of these new virtual banks. But in reality, this is a short-term fix because at some point you will realize that these people that you see totally unbanked, you're not necessarily particularly happy to do business with. So, Erko, looking at tech, particularly fintech, is one of the factors that we're looking at here is that there are, are just too many fintech companies in the marketplace and there's got to be some sort of fallout. Well, to be honest with you, the reason why fintech started is because after we had such an enormous amount of capital flowing in before the credit crunch, we had an overflow of capital and therefore borrowing money was very, very cheap. So even if you didn't need it, you just borrow it because it was better. It was an opportunity cost you had to pay zero for, but was worth something. What I'm trying to say is that they didn't have necessarily the proper valuation of the risk, the intrinsic risk. And I can tell you because I was dealing with these credit derivatives and the buyer, so my customer, will buy regardless because in their own mind, those were very high-yielding assets, but they didn't consider or anticipate the risk that they were buying in. Now, shifting to what is happening now, you have these technologies and you don't have guidelines because soon after this major event, this crisis, we have been burdened with excessive regulations much, much excessive, very effectively. It paralyzed the banks. Most of the banks collapsed because of this. So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So right now we are effectively working in an environment where we don't know whether regulators are going to rule out what we're doing right now. So maybe tomorrow we wake up and the product they're building in is not going to be suitable anymore. So there is this gray zone, which in my opinion is actually, is not casual. So it is a desired effect because banks at some point are going to step in. And whenever there is going to be some sort of a convergence from the old banks, then there is going to be a convergence on regulation as well. So it's a sort of uh, tit for tat. And all these players, as you said, they are effectively occupying a market, but not all of them would be suitable. So we mentioned risk in there. Risk must be one of the biggest factors then that if you're CFO of a tech company or any company that's looking for investment in the next 12 months, risk must be top of your agenda to manage. I'm not sure whether it may be interesting, but I would like to quote an episode. I have a degree from MIT and my finance professor, which is the famous Stu Myers of the famous book, once told us 
that you know beware of what everybody's doing because if everybody's doing the same thing that doesn't mean they are all correct so always be mindful of what is happening so the case that happened to me was I went to Parmalat, which is to date the biggest European fraud. I think more or less it was a $14 billion default. And I remember going in there three years before and the rationale that I got from the CFO, the person that I was interacting with, was really illogical to me. So again, I haven't been trained in always looking not going with the flow, but have a different kind of perception, try to look for dangers. I managed to effectively sever any, any sort of relationship with this guy. And to be honest with you, I paid a price once I came back in my bank because they were saying everybody's making money from this company and we're not. So I'm using this metaphor because I want to say that whenever in that role, you need to have a different perspective from everybody else. So you always have to think that maybe doing some business might give you a little bit of profit, but if the business turn out to be a fraud or very dangerous, the potential downfall is going to be humongous. So always be mindful of the balance between the two. If an opportunity will give you a small reward, but it carries a humongous risk, Maybe it's not necessarily worth to buy in. I suppose one of the things we've got to be thinking about this year is doing business with companies that may well go become insolvent. Well, I don't know what is happening. I mean, I've been reading many extracts from what is currently happening in the crypto world and the latest developments. Crypto per se, it's an altogether different proposition. I certainly love the blockchain infrastructure, which is behind it all. I think it's fascinating, the concept, the application and everything. With regard to what is going to happen, I think it's important to have a thorough due diligence. How do you do a, a thorough due diligence? Well, what happened for me was somebody show me and train me before even entering a due diligence, try to tell me uh, what we were supposed to be doing and how we were about to go doing it. Try the what-if approach, due diligence. These days, I'm not sure they do a great deal of due diligences. So that is another thing that is going to emerge in the next year. Yeah. So very clear message to our finance leader community. You need your governance and control competency really, really there at the best level it can be in 2023. You need your risk registers up to date and you need to make sure that you've got the right processes in place to make sure that due diligence happens on any of the major deals you're doing. But sometimes these things can be really tricky, meaning sometimes the issues are so well hidden, whether it's on purpose or not, sometimes you really need to dig deep. And therefore, you know, I think somebody said the devil is in the detail. So, and I cannot agree more. Mm. And I guess the other thing is it's never too early to start thinking about securing your next round of investment. And we broadcast a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a CFO from a failed blockchain organization. 
and learned a very clear lesson that if they'd gone to the market and asked for capital sooner, they would have probably survived. And it was the amount of change that happened during the fundraising process that caused them eventually not to get the funds that they needed and to have to think about filing for insolvency. So I'd say don't delay is going to be a very, very clear message here. Well, according to the founding fathers of the accounting profession, which happen to be Italian, they always tell you to deal with companies with good faith and we use with the behavior of the good pater familias, so with the father taking care of his family. Now, I'm thinking if I want to buy something and I need a little bit of funding, say I want to buy a new home, I'm not going to go and buy and ask for a mortgage the month before I actually sign the contract. But the whole process starts from the mortgage and then eventually look for the asset. So it doesn't really take much. It's just the thinking process of somebody who has done the business, who has been in the thick of it, that you actually do put the right sequence in place. Yeah. So the big, big message here, that 2023 is going to be different. It's going to be tough. There isn't going to be anywhere near the amount of capital available in the market that we've seen. There will be some sort of fallout because of there being possibly too many tech companies around. We'll see a consolidation. We'll see bigger being better. We won't necessarily see the number of IPOs taking place at big values that we've seen in the past. We'll probably see more by the way of MBO. We'll certainly be seeing more M&A taking place. And through everything, the appropriate due diligence is the right thing to do. I also am contemplating something else. Here in my notes, I wrote about East and West. So, for instance, you were mentioning fintech. There are too many, say, payment startup. For me, the definition of payment startup company is it has to be global because it cannot be a company whereby you go and you hire, you know, 100 merchants. It has to be a global company for global conglomerates. So you actually don't go after customer, you go after companies that need your service. And again, I think I mentioned earlier on going from B2C to B2B. Once you do this and you bring together, I'm moving my hands like all good Italians do. Once you bring together East and West, you realize that there are different ways of doing things, different valuation, if you will. But in the end, the people that will be able to be successful in both markets are going to be the winner. So if I may, I'm going to push the envelope a little bit further. That is to say, where is, as of today, the place where East and West meet? Maybe earlier on was London. Now, today is Singapore. And I personally have done business in Singapore. If you go to Singapore, then international tax planning becomes a major asset. So once again, you tend to become global, but you need to have a leader let's say, I wouldn't say global, but an international perception so that you can put all the assets in the right way. You can organize your structure in a way to maximize your potential and doing this. So this is point number one. Point number two, while you do all of this, you have two faces of the same coin. It's either due diligence or fraud. 
So when you go and you do fundraising, you have to come out strong and anticipate a very punitive regimen of nasty questions coming from investor, which will be for sure focusing on this issue. And sometimes, and this is something else I want people to think, it's not necessarily that you are a fraudster, that you are trying to deceive people. The problem is that your company grows so much and you as a manager or let's say top management, CEO, CFO, CTO, are focusing on going out there and getting new customer and getting new funding, but you don't focus internally. So sometimes when you realize, when you wake up to the problem, you're still already too late. Mm, that's a sobering thought that you've got to keep the house right inside as well as looking for the new business outside. Absolutely. So interesting point there. You're spotting the move from London to Singapore. The view in the UK of Brexit and having all the freedoms of being outside of the EU is to try and strengthen the position of London. Does this imply that the position of London has actually been weakened by what's gone on in the last three or four years? Well, I've been living in London for more than two decades. So, you know, London is now my home and I love it here. But at the same time, a lot of things change. And to be honest with you, Brexit is a big thing. And since I'm a host here, I'm not going to say anything about it, but certainly change the focus. And I can tell you firsthand, if London was to be still in the EU, for many of the investors now in Singapore, they would have considered London first, no question about it. But now Singapore is taking the lead for a number of reasons. First of all, all the major players are going there. Second of all, Singapore is at the end of a game that started about 20 years ago because they were trying to attract capital as an offshore basis for companies, major funds to invest locally in the Southeast Asia. So what is happening right now is actually the other way around. And that is fascinating, particularly because I opened a $10 billion vehicle back then, say 20 years ago, as a way for me to gain access to the Eastern market. But I think right now is used the other way around. And that's the beauty of finance. So you need to anticipate. So something else I wanted to tell you, but I'm quite sure you'll touch base on it, is the talent the development of the people that you have in the organization at any level. Yeah. So really interested to get your view on that talent development. Where do you think that's going at the moment? Well, it is a bit difficult because whenever you talk to companies, to people, to students or to graduates, they always take ownership of the issue. And it's actually quite difficult to see it from above, see some sort of a trend. But as a matter of fact, the case study that I always say, if you are the CEO of, a, say, a major multinational company, for the sake of our argument, let's talk about Unilever. Can you possibly be the CEO of Unilever without leaving Switzerland for all your life? You will be unsuitable for the role because by definition, that is a company that it plays locally in any destination, but at the same time, at a certain level, they have a global perspective. So how can you incorporate a global perspective on these companies? For me, it takes a shift. Let's call it a generational shift in the hiring trends. So you need a person that is capable of 
mastering more than one topic, that is finance or law, tax, operations, technology, if not being you know, super specialist, but at least knowledgeable at some level. And most of all, and this is something I strongly believe in, you need to have a team that is not there to do as they are told by you. So they are not soldiers. They are all people working together with you, where everybody's bringing his own you know, tiny expertise in order to go deeper on each individual topic. And the last time we talked, I mentioned 14 or 15 topics. You show me your own schedule where you have 45. I think really reflecting on what you've just said there, and I'm thinking of what Grow CFO are doing going into next year. And during the course of 2022, we rebuilt the CFO competency framework, which has nine competencies and the 45 skills you've mentioned. And we've had a lot of people going through that, Urkel, and nobody scores well in all 45. Everybody has some area they can develop in. And I think that's probably one of the things that we're seeing as a trend. The breadth that the finance leader has to have is getting greater. You've got to cover more topics, as you say. You're not just the finance expert in the business. You've got to understand all the aspects of the business. Also, what else are we doing in Grow CFO? We're recognizing that, well, it's very, very global these days. And one of the things that we're trying to do through the Grow CFO Slack community is bring the community together so that CFOs can talk to each other and ask questions about doing business in other global regions. Frequent questions will be, oh, we're just opening some business in UK company, opening business in Florida. Can anybody recommend a good firm of accountants we can deal with in Florida? Can anybody tell us which banks perhaps are best to deal with there? And we're seeing that happening in a lot of places. I think we've got probably about 100 countries represented in Grow CFO now. And it recognizes that, well, you might spend a good chunk of your career working in London. You may move as part of that career somewhere else. But even if you move into two or three different countries, you still can't have a truly global experience. You're still going to be limited in some way or other. So I firmly believe being able to network and talk to people that have got the bits of global experience that you're missing is going to be a major, major need in the next few years. I think the the third thing is, well, we've got the transaction simulator in GrowCFO where we help people who haven't had huge fundraising experience to get some in a friendly simulated environment. And I think knowing the process, knowing exactly what to do, knowing what's got to be in pitch decks, knowing the things you've got got to have covered off is going to be more important than ever. You're not going to be able to wing it going forward. Your the questions from investors are going to be tougher. I apologize if I divert my sight. I was writing something to complement what you were just saying. I think what you are saying that is something I totally agree with. It has to do with something that I am quite often reluctant to talk about, which is leadership. Because whether or not you are a leader, it's not for you to say, it's for other people to say. Exactly. But at the same time, uh, leadership is the ability or the energy or the power that pushes you, me, and everybody to admit 
look, out of these 45 skills, if I am very, very good, I can master 20, 25 of these. On the other 20, I am effectively, as we say, tabula rasa, I know very few. So leadership is a number one, having the humility and uh, foresightedness to solve this issue. And personally, I was in business school in the US, I've done business in Italy, Spain, Germany, Portugal, Poland, and then in Singapore, in China, throughout this place. You cannot possibly know the details of it, the nitty gritty, particularly because I was doing arbitrage at some point. So really finding the detail that I was talking about. But once you have this sort of a frame of mind to dig the major differences, then you have the ability to start asking to your staff, to your colleagues, and say, look, usually for us to accomplish this and that, we will be looking at these particular accounts. Does it work in the same way for you? How many years do you take to depreciate this asset? Can you do it faster? Can you do it slower? Now, the more you talk, the more you face this issue, you will realize that things are not necessarily that different on a generic basis. When you go into the detail, then of course it changes. But at the same time, when you're sitting at your table, you are thinking about doing a JV or doing a, an hostile acquisition of a company. That's the frame of mind that you should talk to. So if I go there, I will have the ability to uh, have a fantastic, I don't know, tax breaks, or I have a tax carry forward that I can take advantage. Please, can you tell me how to do that in that specific country? So you have to contemplate a global, how can I say, overview, but it has to be, of course, supported by a great deal of local knowledge. And only a team that is prepared and chosen and uh, mentored in that way can achieve it. So one conclusion I draw from that is saying that when times get tough, one of the first things that usually gets cut is the training budget. And actually, that is the wrong thing to do in our current climate. The one thing we should be doing is probably increasing our training budget and making sure that the CFO has got the skills the CFO needs recognize what you just said, that you can't be the master in all 45. So you've got to rely on the team, the people around you, to be able to pick up in the areas that you recognize you've got gaps yourself. And that means you can't be running a command and control environment. You've got to empower the team around you as a true leader. And I'm not sure whether I'm that good about it, but at least this is what I, the signal I send right away. This is yeah. the kind of person I want to be. Then, of course, if you find that one of your one or two or three of your team are not necessarily up to standard, then, of course, you need to somewhat support them. However, allow me to say something else. This is in the ideal world, what I've noticed, uh, and in the ideal world, I would like to implement. But at the same time, also, sometimes we interface, actually, I would say very often with regulators and authorities. Now, it has happened to me to deal quite often with the European Central Banks, which was actually for a long time, for a long period of time, run by my fellow Italian and MIT graduate, uh, Professor Draghi. 
So it was a very good, uh, very well-run company. But at the same time, they had a bunch of um, accountants doing the supervision because they wanted to implement a European-wide supervision, which were not to be influenced by countries and local uh, uh, centers of power. And eventually what happened is that they had a fantastic overview of the risk embedded in these banks statically, but they lost it altogether dynamically because they didn't want it to have some sort of a financial and therefore dynamic view of the risk incoming, of the impending risk. So that is also the paradox. And of course, you need to try to make the best of it. Mm, indeed. So, Urkel, we've covered a huge, huge amount of ground there. I hope it was uh, interesting for the people that are listening to us. I've tried to recap on the key points on, on several points, several times as we've gone through, but I think going back, capital is going to be in short supply. There is going to be a greater scrutiny process, more competition to get that capital. You need to be on top of your game. You need to have done the due diligence. You need to be ready for the difficult questions. And you need to be thinking bigger. You need to be thinking globally. It's going to be more about B2B than B2C. And I think summing up what we've spoken about at the end, now is the time to invest in your team, in the people around you, and in yourself. It times might be getting tougher, cash might be getting tighter, but the decision to cut training budgets would be the wrong thing to do right now. Well, same thing that happened 20 years ago with cutting IT expenditures. Yeah, big mistake. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very, very much for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I hope we cover some interesting stuff.